This is week five um, in a five-week series entitled Purpose, Finding Your Purpose. And um, we've been answering the big question according to what the Bible says your purpose is. So, I mean, there's speculation. You can go up on a mountain or into the back of a cave or onto an island and you can get zen and you can try speculate what your purpose is. That's one way. The other thing you could do is you can open up the Bible and go, has God said anything? Turns out he said a lot about what your purpose is. So in my clubs or small groups, we've been trying to find out our unique purpose. But God's word gives the purpose to every believer and every church. And in fact, there are five aspects to our purpose. Firstly, we learned that our purpose is Christ. Our purpose is actually to know Jesus. And if you missed that, maybe you missed the purpose of your life. Secondly, our purpose is Christ-likeness. Not only do you know Jesus, you become more like Him. Of course, this is a long, winding journey with setbacks. But that is where it's meant to go. Thirdly, our purpose is community. That, that's Christ's church. Fourthly, we learned last week that our purpose is the common good. In other words, love for neighbor. And of course, that's what we do all week long, throughout, especially in our work. We're interacting with people. And you learn how to apply uh, Jesus' commandment, love your neighbor as the Lord loves you. And as love your neighbor. That's part of our purpose, the common good. And then I've got the final aspect today, and it's this. Our purpose is the Great Commission. Our purpose is the Great Commission. So just in case you're wondering how incredibly useful this information is, imagine starting your day tomorrow and looking in the mirror, and you're all groggy, and you're still trying to remember your name because it's like another night, and you woke up too early, and then you're going, what am I doing with my life? Try this. Look in the mirror and go, your purpose is Christ. Your purpose is Christ-likeness. Your purpose is community. Your purpose is the common good. Your purpose is the Great Commission. I bet you'll walk away from that with a spring in your step and a lazy sense of focus. That's what our purpose is. I think about these five aspects of purpose as being very interconnected. Each of them touches upon the other. So it's not like you go, well, I'm going to go for these two and forget about the other three. For example, the Great Commission, actually reaching people for Jesus, you're going to find that hard to do if you don't have an attitude of loving your neighbor. If you come across as a person that actually doesn't care about people, you're just trying to tell everyone about Jesus, nobody's going to listen to you. And you're going to struggle to love your neighbor in the common good if you don't root yourself in a community where we, where we basically immerse ourselves in the love of God. And you're going to struggle to experience community if you aren't also practicing Christ-likeness. And you're going to struggle to practice Christ-likeness if you aren't drawing closer to Christ. So in some ways, there are like five threads that, that weave together to make this rope. That's our purpose. Uh, maybe you can remember. So can you remember what our purpose is? Firstly, our purpose is Christ. Secondly, our purpose is Christ-likeness. Thirdly, our purpose is community. Fourthly, our purpose is that common good. And then today, our purpose is the Great Commission. Okay, write that down somewhere in case you try to remember you can't remember tomorrow morning. So in this final message, I want to speak about the Great Commission. So in Matthew's Gospel, it tells how Jesus first calls Peter uh, to be a disciple. To be a disciple. He finds him on the beach and he's fishing. And Jesus says to Peter, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. That's in, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. Luke's gospel tells the story with more detail. 
So in Luke's Gospel, we told the story that Jesus borrows Peter's boat from which to teach a crowd. He's teaching a crowd and, and, and he says, I need some space between me and all these people. And he says, Peter, can I climb on your boat? So Peter takes him out. And after the sermon, Peter's sitting there quite awkwardly. You know, he was just on the beach and now he's like next to the preacher in the boat. It's quite awkward. And he's pretty keen to get back to the beach. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So Peter objects to the absurdity. You know, reluctantly he's going to obey, but he's basically thinking, you're a teacher, I'm a fisherman, I can listen to you all day, but leave fishing to me. And besides, I spent all night last night, not a fish, this part of the lake. Reluctantly Peter obeys. And if you've read the story, the next thing, his nets are breaking, his boat is sinking, and he is overwhelmed by this amazing catch. And he suddenly realizes the man in his boat is more than just a rabbi. He's something else. And he comes to Jesus and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So notice first he calls him a rabbi, a teacher, a respected religious teacher. Now he's calling him Lord. He doesn't quite understand even what he's saying yet, but he's like, You are no ordinary human being. And he wants to run away from Jesus. He's overwhelmed. He feels exposed. And then in Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Hear what Jesus is saying? Peter, I know your sin, but my grace is greater. Don't be afraid. Peter, a great adventure lies ahead of you. So far in your life, you've only known the joy of catching fish. As you follow me, I'm going to introduce you to the joy of drawing lives into the kingdom of God. And if you fast forward, by the way, it's Peter who gets to preach the first public sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he sees... 3,000 people coming to faith in one day. I mean, a remarkable launch for the church of Jesus. But track it back, because once fisherman, Jesus called him. Peter wasn't sitting on the beach saying, Hey, I want to do something awesome in my life. That's not what this is about. This is about responding to the purpose that God gives you. So they pulled up their boats up on shore, left everything and followed in Luke chapter 5 verse 11. And every follower of Jesus since then has the same invitation. Jesus calls us to himself. We need to realize that he's not just the teacher. He's the Lord. And he doesn't just want us to know him. He wants to use us to introduce others to him. So my message, I want to speak about why introduce others to Jesus. And I'm mindful that maybe some of you have yet come to know Jesus. And I think this message is going to be spot on for you too today. So why introduce others to Jesus? For three reasons. Number one, Christ's salvation is too good to keep secret. Number two, Christ's compassion is too big to contain. And number three, Christ's commission is too great to disobey. So now you know what I'm going to preach. (laughs) So let's get into those three reasons. The first one. Christ's salvation is too good to keep secret. In his epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul remembers how the people he is writing to were once, and he describes them in chapter 2, without Christ, without hope, and without God in the world. That's what they were. Then they heard the gospel, came to faith. Now he celebrates the fact that in chapter 2 verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So they were once without God, without hope, and now they've got all the reason in the world to rejoice. And I've been a follower of Jesus most of my life now. You know, I was 16 when I came to faith, 
And I look back on what the benefits, if I can put it that, uh, why I'm glad that I stumbled across Jesus when I was 16. And, uh, and there are lots of theological reasons I could speak about the doctrine of justification, adoption, forgiveness, sanctification, glorification. Okay, let's put those inside. There are reasons. I want to speak about the felt difference that following Jesus has made in my life. Because these are the reasons that you've got to remind yourself of when you are not motivated to share your faith with others. So this point might get a little complicated because I'm going to just mention five reasons that I think salvation is too good to keep secret. So the first one is, I look back at my life, what is being a Christian meant for me? It's meant I have a relationship with God. Honestly, I thought Christianity was a religion based on rules. And then you come to Jesus and those are the two words that you never use to describe what you're experiencing. Never thought of my relationship with Jesus anything to do with religion. Sociologically, of course, you can describe Christianity as a religion, but the internal experience is knowing Jesus. And certainly not about rules, it's about knowing Jesus as my friend, as a person in my life. And I admit that I'm still in the shallow end of knowing this God after all these years. But when I look back at the joy of being in the presence of this God, pouring out my heart to Him in prayer, hearing Him whisper to me through the Scriptures and the Spirit, and sensing Him pour out His love into my heart. And this carries on year after year after year. I don't know how your week was. Mine was embattled. I was absolutely exhausted by the end of the week. I just found myself locked into three circumstantial battles where I felt cornered and uh, based on misunderstandings or trying to do something and, and just feeling so like a battle. That's exactly the word that I've discovered. And, and trying to be wise but feeling weary, trying to like, tame down my emotional reactivity and all of this. And this morning, just felt the presence of God again saying, I'll fight your battles. Between you and this battle is Jesus. You can pray to me. I can, I can move in this situation. I so needed to hear that to me today. I, see, I so needed to sing those words and feel the Holy Spirit reassuring me that there is safe harbor in Christ. We've got a relationship. And secondly, my view of all things has changed. See, when we come to know God, it's as C.S. Lewis. Last night, uh, Eli Finn and I were watching... The most reluctant conversion on earth. It's a new a movie about C.S. Lewis, famous Christian author. And uh, anyway, he's got this quote where he says, he says that when you come to know God, it's like you see the sun rising. Says, but then you look around and you also see the landscape as if for the first time. So, so that's what happens. Is when you get to see Jesus with all of his wisdom and duty and strength and holiness... You go, wow, Jesus, the lion and the lamb. But then you look at other things in your life, not Jesus, and you see them in a whole new way. We often use the term of what's your theology on it. People get confused by this term. In other words, what's your biblically informed understanding about money, sexuality, war? In fact, I wrote a whole book last year that's creating a bit of a stir. Women, how God sees women. A theology of women. Now think back at the joy of seeing things in a new way. This has been one of the great delights of my life. Especially when I look around at my culture. It looks like my culture has gone absolutely mad. Not able to make sense of things. 
We're so glad that, that, that Jesus gives you a view on things. Yeah. The moment I'm busy preparing for my next book, A Theology of Children. And I'm so excited about this camp. It's going to be 25 or 30 children. And I want to practice the presence of children. I want to try to see these kids through Jesus' eyes. And by the way, if you come to this camp, let's make an effort to make these kids feel so special. Get to know their names, make them feel included. They are forming their experience of God based on the way we're interacting with them. So our view of things changed. The other thing that happens in salvation is that my heart's composition has changed. It's true that your sins are forgiven when you become a Christian. Thank goodness. But also you get a new heart. The Spirit of God begins to etch into the walls of your heart new cravings, new desires, even new abilities. When I became a Christian, immediately things that used to bring me great joy left a bad taste in my mouth. My whole taste for things changed. And things that I never thought I'd be interested in suddenly became so interested in. I'm so interested in the things of God. I'm so interested in the Bible. I'm so interested in the presence of God. I'm so interested in holiness. Where do these desires come from? From the Holy Spirit. You get a new heart. You get new cravings, new longings, new abilities. The other thing is my life's trajectory has changed. I often hear testimonies of people who in their later years come to faith. I've got friends in a church. A guy came to faith in his 80s a few months ago. Getting baptized. You listen to the testimony and there's such joy. There's also such regret. The wasted years. The wasted decades of living your life in self-reliance, living your life for self, living your life without God and without hope in this world. And I often wonder, where would my life have gone if I hadn't come to faith in Jesus? For one, I personally doubt I could have ever pulled off a marriage and being a dad. Like, you know, I've got five kids, I live in the birds, my marriage is still lasting. I mean, I came from such broken marriages, homes on both sides. And, uh, and, and faith, Jesus, the, the, word, the wisdom of God, changed the whole direction of my life. My eternal destination has changed. I mean, this is a big one. If you think about the long perspective, life has many choices, but eternity has two. Since I've come to faith, I don't fear dying. I mean, I do fear my life on this earth ending. I don't want that to happen. I don't know about you. I don't look forward to dying. But I don't fear what's on the other side. I've got such assurance that Jesus, who I know in this life, is waiting for me on the other side. That I'll be absent from the body and I'll be present with the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from 150 years ago, he used to say, if you want to go to a Christless eternity, you're going to have to jump over my body and go there with my arms hanging around your knees. <laughs> I think it, we, are, we are meant to think about people's eternal destination. I think it is meant to motivate us to want to share faith with them. I think we're all a little scared of looking down by articulating our faith in Jesus. And being perceived as a crazy or trying to push something on someone. None of us want to do that. But when we consider their lives and their desperate need for salvation. And then remember, not just Charles Spurgeon wrestling you around the legs. But the cross of Christ is a giant blockade on the road to a Christless eternity. And he's not just holding around your knees. He's standing there. He's on the cross with his arms open wide. Ready to wrestle the whole world. Billions of people out of a Christless eternity. 
So, I mean, that's what I've lived in. These five things since I've become a Christian at age 16. I have had problems in my life, in my adult years. I've been burdened by unanswered prayers and unresolved questions, disappointments and setbacks. But a thousand times over, I've been able to rejoice even in the midst of agony and confusion because nothing in this life has been able to dislodge the fact that my salvation is anchored to Jesus Christ. That I didn't save me. He saved me. And the salvation is too good to keep to ourselves. Second reason to, re- to introduce others to Jesus is not only that um, Christ's salvation is too good to keep secret, but that Christ's compassion is too big to contain. Um, Gareth prayed a prayer for me. God, anoint Karen from the tip of his head, the tip of his toes. <laughs> the other day, Julie was talking to little Charlie who climbed in our bed, and she kissed him on his feet, and she said, I love you from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes. Now, here's the glass half empty of the twins and he said that's not very much some people love their children to the moon and back (laughs) Psalm 103 says as the great as the heavens are above the earth that's how great God's love is for us you take the outer perimeter of the universe measure to the earth that's how great God's love is for us that's the moon and back trillions and trillions of times Jesus loved us from heaven to earth. (laughs) He loved us from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. People should matter to us because they matter to Jesus. If you you could have put a stethoscope to Jesus' chest while he walked on this earth, what would you have heard? Well, Matthew chapter 9, we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, when he was in Cavendish, or he was on Fourth Beach... Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We so desperately need to see people like he sees them. We look at them and go, the person's got nice clothes on, nice car, they look happy. (laughs) Kids are in this suburban fancy school. They're fine. Hang on. What's their spiritual condition? Jesus says, without God, you're a sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable to the wolf, on the wrong path, without real substantial and lasting comfort. He said, helpless and harassed, which are words for plundered, distressed, bewildered, dejected, scattered. Given enough time, every person, even who circumstantially is surrounded with security, will feel some of that breakthrough reality of their spiritual condition. It's much better, says Jesus, that everybody comes into the fold of the Good Shepherd. And in fact, the one word to describe the emotions of Jesus, more than any other in the Gospels, is the word splagchnistes. That's the Greek word. (laughs) And translated compassion. But the English word compassion doesn't do justice to the depth of this word. It speaks about a convulsive turning of one's inmost being. God's heart is not made of stone. It's an open wound of love. It yearns to bring sin estranged people home. The Apostle Paul, what made his mission or heart tick? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, We try to persuade others, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. Let me just take a little quick interruption advert. Next week we're starting a, a three or four week series called Countdown to the Cross. Each week we're going to look at a different major event in the week before Jesus is crucified. 
So anyway, we try to persuade others, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. All this is from God, says Paul, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But notice Paul's words, Christ's love compels us. Paul feels, and we can feel, the compassion of Jesus welling up in our own hearts. Why did God send Jesus? John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he sent his son. Love is why God sent Jesus. And why did Jesus die on the cross? Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. Love is the reason God sent the son. Love is the reason Jesus died on the cross. His heart is bursting with compassion. And when we feel even just some of that same love welling up in us, well, it's simply too big to contain. And we can join Paul who says, we try to persuade others for Christ's love compels us. In 2018, during the FIFA World Cup, fascinating thing happened. The most uh, focused on soccer team in the world uh, was a bunch of 12-year-olds. Do you remember the story? 12 children and their soccer coach in Thailand, after soccer practice, go to a local jungle, there's a cave, the coach says, I want to show you this cool cave, and the monsoon rains are only meant to come in a month, but they're coming that afternoon, kids don't know, and they're going to the back of this cave, monsoon rains come, and they, they run away from this rising water until they're four kilometers deep in the cave, but nobody knows that, everybody thinks the children are dead, until two British divers go into this cave, and these are the best divers in the world. There's so much mud, so much moving water. People say it can't be done. Three times they take off their, their, their um, oxygen tanks just to squeeze into holes. They're about to turn back when they pop up and they notice graffiti on a wall. It's a sign. They keep going four kilometers wow. into this cave and pop up and they've got GoPro footage. There are 12 kids in the coach smiling, all well behaved, very happy to see some. <laughs> they go back with the news and the GoPro footage goes viral and who cares now about any other soccer team in the world and the whole world is now trying to save these 100, these 12 kids can it be done we don't know but the sheer value of these little children we've seen their faces warrant an all-out search so that a hundred cavers are trying to get in there and everything that can be done is done even redirecting rivers <laughs> What warranted this all-out rescue mission? It was the sheer values of the ones who could be rescued. I wonder what value Jesus must place on the lives of lost people. People in the dark. People who cannot save themselves. We must let the sheer compassion of God for lost people cause us to embark on the mission. Even if we don't reach people, we must try. And then third, third answer. Why introduce others to Jesus? Number three. Christ's commission is too great to disobey. Christ's commission is too great to disobey. So when people die, they often give their last words. Sometimes they miss the moment. <laughs> but let's hope, like, when you're going to die, I'm going to say something cool. <laughs> generation later, they're still quoting those last words. Listen to Jesus' last words. 
five records. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. Matthew, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Mark, go and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. John, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Acts, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Very few of us are going to be called by God to go to some desert tribe and die while we tell them about Jesus. But the people who have done those kind of things, I think they should inspire us. We're not going to cross the sea, at least cross the street. (laughs) You're not going to go to perfect strangers, at least go to family members. Mark Batterson in his book, All In, tells of one such person who was ready to obey Jesus' command regardless of the cost. And I just want to read it to you. It's quite inspiring. Again, none of us are going to do this probably. But come on, it gives you urgency and you know, a sense of, come on, we've got to do something. Listen to it. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return off. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew. They knew they'd never return home. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters or cannibals who lived there had eaten every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he already had died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years he lived among that tribe and loved them. And when he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph epitaph on his tombstone. They wrote, when he came there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. What if we were to take just a little bit of that give it all, go-getter instinct? And one way amongst many is for churches to plant more churches. I mean, as the world population grows, so the weight of this command grows. The book of Acts, if you read it, starts with one church in Jerusalem. By the end of the New Testament, there are 20 named churches in all. Fast forward to our time. Now, how many churches there are in the world? 38 million. 50,000 new ones added every year. That sounds like a lot. It's hardly enough churches for a soon-to-be 8 billion people in this world. We need to plant more. And every church, whether it has been around for a long time or not, must keep focused on the mission to make more disciples, to preach to more people, to go to more people, and to be witnesses in every hamlet, town, suburb, ghetto, city, people group, country, and if people relocate their planets. (laughs) So let me pull this together. Why introduce others to Jesus? One, Christ's salvation is too good to keep secret. Number two, Christ's compassion is too big to contain. And number three, Christ's commission is too great to disobey. I'm guessing you're feeling more inspired than you were before the prospect of sharing the love of God with more people.